Which city is this? It's such a beautiful description of America at the turn of the century, from the 1800s to the 1900s. Quote, There were plenty of windows in her little front room. They were, for the most part, dingy, but as they were nearly always open, it did not make so much difference. They often emitted into the room a good deal of smoke and soot, but at the same time, all the light and air that was there came through them. From her windows could be seen the crescent of the river, the mass of ships, they often emitted into the room a good deal of smoke and soot, but at the same time all the light and air that there was came through them. From her windows could be seen the crescent of the river, the masts of ships and the big chimneys of the Mississippi steamers. A magnificent piano crowded the apartment. In the next room she slept and in the third and last she harboured a gasoline stove on which she cooked her meals when disinclined to descend to the neighbouring restaurant. It was there also that she ate, keeping her belongings in a rare old buffet, dingy and battered from a hundred years of use. And then Riche plays for Edna, quote, The shadows deepened in the little room. The music grew strange and fantastic, turbulent, insistent, plaintive and soft with entreaty. The shadows grew deeper. The music filled the room. It floated out upon the night, over the housetops, the crescent of the river, losing itself in the silence of the upper air. Edna was sobbing. Of course, it's Mademoiselle Riche, the fantastic pianist that moves Edna so much and her little apartment in New Orleans. I'm Roger and this episode of Bookshook is all about the second half of The Awakening, published in 1899 and written by the American author Kate Chopin. So I take a book, split it in two and discuss each half in consecutive podcasts. I'll briefly summarise the half alongside my thoughts and reactions and raise any ideas that resonate with me, but be warned there will be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts on the book, so send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Also, let me know of any book suggestions you may have. Welcome to Bookshook. So, today I'm discussing The Awakening from Halfway. The major question I have is, will Edna and Robert get it together at all? The novel continues with Edna married with kids in a quiet, loveless marriage. She's fallen for a man, Robert, who has now left for Mexico. She feels like she is beginning to awaken in terms of realising that she is shackled by her marriage and is striving to break free. Throughout this whole second half, Edna is developing and training herself in her skills at drawing, something that when she was asleep, quotes asleep, she perhaps overlooked or didn't have time for. Now she's beginning to awaken. This is a past time that becomes a serious outlet for her creativity. This is a pastime that becomes a serious outlet for her creativity. Anyway, it's now the middle of November. She looks up a pianist she met on holiday, Mademoiselle Riche. She wants to hear her play the piano again. In the first part of the novel, she'd been very moved by her playing. She looks up Madame Lebrun to try to track her down. And when she sees her, she reads letters from Robert. He's been in Mexico City and Vera Cruz. There's no mention of Edna and that makes her feel despondent. When she does finally track down Mademoiselle Riche, Edna is delighted and overcome that Robert has written to Riche and that, quote, the letter might as well have been written to you. It was nothing but Mrs. Pontellier from beginning to end. There you go, Edna. I thought he wouldn't forget you. She recalls that one did state, quote, if Mrs. Pontellier should call upon you, play for her that impromptu of Chopin's, my favourite. I heard it here a day or two ago, but not as you play it. I should like to know how it affects her. Edna insists she plays and sobs when she reads one of the letters. We, the reader, are not privy to the contents, though. Oh, Kate Chopin, you're playing with our emotions. 
Anyway, Mr. Pontellier complains to his doctor when he bumps into him in the street that his wife has feminist tendencies. Quote, she's got some sort of notion in her head concerning the eternal rights of women. The doctor inquires of her, quote, family antecedents and is informed she is from, quote, sound old Presbyterian Kentucky stock. His prescription for her symptoms is to send her away to visit her younger sister, Janet, who is about to get married. Something tells me this is not going to fix Edna's emerging awakening. The doctor says he will visit to make a further diagnosis, and that's my word, and he does think to himself that another man may be involved. Now, Edna's father is in town, and they both meet up for dinner with the doctor alongside Mr. Pontellier. Their account tells of the past, and the doctor, possibly to gauge her reaction and find out whether she really is seeing another man, recounts this tale. Quote, he told the old, ever new and curious story of the waning of a woman's love, seeking strange new channels, only returned to its legitimate source after days of fierce unrest. It was one of the many little human documents which had been unfolded to him during his long career as a physician. The story did not seem especially to impress Edna. She had one of her own to tell, of a woman who paddled away with her lover one night in a pirogue and never came back. Every glowing word seemed real to those who listened. They could feel the hot breath of the southern night. They could hear the long sweep of the pirogue through the glistening moonlit waters. The beating of birds' wings rising startled from among the reeds in the salt water pools. They could see the faces of the lovers, pale, close together, wrapped in obvious forgetfulness, drifting into the unknown. What evocative writing that is. She's on to him, perhaps, and battles him back with her tales of a woman who is set free with her lover. The doctor is not stupid and realises she must be involved with someone else earlier in the night. Quote, he observed his hostess attentively from under his shaggy brows and noted a subtle change which had transformed her from the listless woman he had known into a being who, for the moment, seemed palpitant with the forces of life. Her speech was warm and energetic. There was no repression in her glance or gesture. She reminded him of some beautiful, sleek animal waking up in the sun. Edna does not want to go to her sister's wedding and has a lengthy argument with her father. Leonce decides to take the doctor's advice and leaves her alone, not forcing her to go to her sister's wedding. And a friend of his, the colonel, tells him, quote, You are too lenient, too lenient by far, Leonce, asserts the colonel. Authority, coercion are what is needed. Put your foot down, good and hard. The only way to manage a wife. Take my word for it. The narrator adds, quote, The colonel was perhaps unaware that he had coerced his own wife into her grave. What misogynist, sexist thinking from the colonel that a wife needs to be managed as if you're directing a business. Leonce leaves for a trip to New York on business and his mother takes the children to a place called Iberville. Quote, the old madam, Leonce's mother, did not venture to say she was afraid they would be neglected during Leonce's absence. She hardly ventured to think so. She was hungry for them, even a little fierce in her attachment. She did not want them to be wholly Quote, children of the pavement, she always said when begging to have them for a space. She wished them to know the country with its streams, its fields, its woods, its freedom, so delicious to the young. When she is alone, she feels, quote, a radiant peace settle upon her. Quote, she tried the various chairs and lounges as if she had never sat and reclined upon them before. And she perambulated around the outside of the house, investigating, looking to see if windows and shutters were secure and in order. The flowers were like new acquaintances. She is entertained at horse racing by Mr. and Mrs. Highcamp and a character called Al C. A. Robin, who is quite smitten by Edna. Sometime later, they meet up again and he tries to romance her. Quote, the thought was passing vaguely through her mind. What would he think? 
She did not mean her husband. She was thinking of Robert Lebrun. Her husband seemed to her now like a person whom she had married without love as an excuse. She lit a candle and went up to her room. Alcy A. Robin was absolutely nothing to her, yet his presence, his manners, the warmth of his glances, and above all, the touch of his lips upon her hand had acted like a narcotic upon her. She slept a languorous sleep, interwoven with vanishing dreams. Now she sees Mademoiselle Reese and tells her she's going to rent a house next to her manor house. She basically admits that she doesn't like living off her husband's money, and she's beginning to sell some of her art to make a little money of her own. Quote, she had resolved never again to belong to another than herself. Now they get to talking of letters from Robert again, and Mademoiselle Reese tells Edna that, quote, Robert loves you, poor fool, and is trying to forget you, since you're not free to listen to him or to belong to him. Mrs. Reese shows her a letter that says Robert is returning soon and Edna finally admits her love for him. She writes an excited letter to her husband telling her of her plans to rent the next door house and she sends bonbon sweets to her children. When she sees A. Robin later, they kiss, quote, the first kiss of her life to which her nature had really responded. It was a flaming torch that kindled desire. Anyway, she gets to moving into her little house and does a lot of the lifting and moving herself. Quote, A. Robin found her with rolled sleeves working in company with the housemaid when he looked in during the afternoon. She was splendid and robust and had never appeared handsomer than the old blue gown with a red silk handkerchief knotted at random around her head to protect her hair from the dust. Ellen, her housemaid, calls the new house, quote, the Pitchen House, and this delights Edna. A. Robin wants to see Edna before the final dinner, before she moves out, but she declines to see him. Quote, not an instant sooner, she said, but she laughed and looked at him with eyes that at once gave him courage to wait and made it torture to wait. Now, Edna has a party to celebrate leaving for the little house. A. Robin stays behind. Quote, he did not answer except to continue to caress her. He did not say goodnight until she had become supple to his gentle, seductive entreaties. Now, her husband duly finds out and is not happy. He's not worried about a scandal, but about his business prospects if people think he's downsizing in some way. He puts an advert in the paper saying they're going on holiday and will be doing renovation work to their house on Esplanade Street. Quote, Edna admired the skill of his manoeuvre and avoided an occasion to bulk his intentions. So she visits her children and they're excited about the possibility of moving into the pigeon house. And when she leaves, quote, their presence lingered with her like the memory of a delicious song. But by the time she had regained the city, the song no longer echoed in her soul. She was again alone. Adele Retignol pops by to see Edna, saying that she needs to be careful living alone. And that A. Robin has, quote, a dreadful reputation. Anyway, she has free reign of Mademoiselle Reese's home and when she comes by to call on her and she's not in, she lets herself in. She plays on her piano and then there's a knock on the door. Guess who? Yep, it's Robert. He's back from Mexico. He sees himself on the piano stool and she asks him when he returned. Quote, I returned day before yesterday, he answered, while he leaned his arm on the keys, bringing forth a crash of discordant sound. Day before yesterday, she repeated aloud and went on thinking to herself, day before yesterday in a sort of uncomprehending way. She had pictured him seeking her at the very first hour and he had lived under the same sky since day before yesterday, while only by accident had he stumbled upon her. Mademoiselle must have lied when she said, quote, poor fool, he loves you. I love that crash on the piano keys, reflecting her emotional inner crash when she feels betrayed by Robert. Now, she invites him back to her house and he expresses how Mexico didn't really work out. He felt like a, quote, lost soul. She expresses similar feelings about her time spent recently. 
inspires a photograph of LeBron and she says it's used as a reference photo for a picture she is drawing of him. She spies him using a beautifully embroidered tobacco pouch. He tells her it was given to him by a Vera Cruz girl and she becomes quite jealous, especially so when LeBron makes an entrance, greets Robert and says he didn't, quote, get so deep in the regard of the Mexican women when he was there in order to get such a beautiful embroidery. Robert Lee is feeling like the situation is very awkward. So we've got a question there. Was the embroidery from a sweetheart? Is he in love with someone? I think Robert's being truthful. He would never have admitted it being from a significant lady. Surely he would have just said he purchased it. Edna has nothing to be jealous about. Now, Erobin confesses her love, but she can only think of Robert. She feels like she was closer to him when he was in Mexico. And even though he has returned to New Orleans, there's a distance between them. She bumps into Robert, coincidentally, at a little leafy coffee shop and they kiss. Robert says he left for Mexico to escape the impossible love he has for Edna since she is married, but ultimately he had to return to her. Now, Edna states that her husband does not own her and she is free to love who she likes. Quote, I'm no longer one of Mr. Pontellier's possessions to dispose of or not. I give myself where I choose. If I were to say, here, Robert, take her and be happy. She is yours. I should laugh at you both. Now she's interrupted by Madame Retinille's servant telling her to visit immediately because Adele is ill. She gives Robert her apologies and leaves. She visits her very ill friend, Adele, who sadly passed away. As she does so, she says, quote, think of the children. Now Dr. Mandalay senses the conflict in Edna between duty and freedom and suggests that he will be able to listen to her if she does want to come to him or for a chat. He says, quote, that youth is given up to illusions. It seems to be a provision of nature, a decoy to secure mothers for the race. And nature takes no account of moral consequences, of arbitrary conditions which we create and which we feel obliged to maintain at any cost. Yes, she said, the years that are gone seem like dreams, if one might go on sleeping and dreaming, but to wake up and find, oh well, Perhaps it's better to wake up after all, even to suffer, rather than to remain a dupe to illusions all one's life. Now, when she gets home, Robert's not there, but he has left a note saying, quote, I love you, goodbye, because I love you. I guess he's gone for good to try and end the conflict for Edna, and because he can't bear being in love with a married woman. Now, Edna goes to Grand Isle. I won't give away the end of the novel, but ultimately she makes a bold decision with her life. Okay, spoiler alert, please. If you're going to read the novel, stop here, because I'm about to give away the ending. So, fast forward 30 seconds or so. Edna swims into the sea and succumbs to, quote, exhaustion. I feel so sad for her that she felt she didn't have a way out, that she couldn't create a new life for herself, that she felt so shackled by society and her place in society that she didn't feel she was able to find any freedom for herself. Although some critics have argued that she didn't kill herself, which casts the ending in a very different light. What did you make of the ending? Now, overall impressions, it's a very sad and difficult novel to read, charting the awakening of this woman and forcing her to make a difficult decision about her future. There's some very interesting ideas about feminism. Now, remember Pontellier complaining that Edna had, quote, got some sort of notion in her head concerning the eternal rights of women. He concerns himself that she comes home after dark and she has, quote, abandoned her Tuesdays at home. And the, re the doctor remarks condescendingly, quote, has she been associating of late with a circle of pseudo-intellectual women, super-spiritual superior beings? My wife has been telling me about them. So clearly some of the male folk and the doctor represents an older generation in this novel are concerned about the rising power and awakened state of women in this novel. There's clearly some sexism in the novel. This leads nicely on to highlight some of the sexist attitudes towards women at the time that are having to be dealt with. Listen to the doctor's diagnosis of Edna's awakening. 
Quote, Pontellier, said the doctor after a moment's reflection, let your wife alone for a while. Don't bother her and don't let her bother you. Woman, my dear friend, is a very peculiar and delicate organism. A sensitive and highly organised woman, such as no Mrs Pontillier to be, is especially peculiar. It would require an inspired psychologist to deal successfully with them. And when ordinary fellows like you and me attempt to cope with their idiosyncrasies, the result is bungling. Most women are moody and whimsical. This is some passing whim of your wife due to some cause or causes which you and I needn't try to fathom. But it will pass happily over, especially if you let her alone. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. When he does decide to leave her alone and not force her to go to her sister's wedding, a friend of his, the colonel, tells him, quote, You are too lenient, too lenient by far, Leonce, asserted the colonel. Authority coercion are what is needed. Put your foot down, good and hard. The only way to manage a wife, take my word for it. And the narrator adds, quote, The colonel was perhaps unaware that he had coerced his own wife into her grave. And when A. Robin sees Edna up a ladder when she's organising her house move, he says, quote, do you want to kill yourself? The implication being that a woman shouldn't be up a ladder doing workman's work. Now, Edna tells A. Robin, quote, when I left Mademoiselle Reese today, she put her arms around me and felt my shoulder blades to see if my wings were strong. She said, the bird that would soar above the level plane of tradition and prejudice must have strong wings. It is a sad spectacle to see the weaklings bruised, exhausted, fluttering back to earth. Whither would you soar? This metaphor of the bird really encapsulates Edna's burgeoning freedom. Now, as I was reading the novel, would you guess that New Orleans is the birthplace of jazz from this novel? Mademoiselle Reese, the pianist that moved Edna so much, talks at Edna's dinner party of the music in New Orleans, quote, she had only disagreeable things to say of the symphony concerts and insulting remarks to make of all the musicians of New Orleans, singly and collectively. All her interest seemed to be incented upon the delicacies placed before her. There are references to Perdido Street, and immediately I think of Louis Armstrong's Perdido Street Blues. Jazz in New Orleans really became popular around 10 or 20 years after the novel was written. But it's interesting there's no references to this popular form of music that must have been heard there at this time. Now, the social expectations of the time are very interesting. When Edna moves to the Pigeon House, she feels a liberation from social expectations. Quote, the Pigeon House pleased her. It at once assumed the intimate character of a home while she herself invested it with a charm which reflected in it like a warm glow. There was with her a feeling of having descended in the social scale with a corresponding sense of having risen in the spiritual. Every step which she took towards relieving herself from obligations added to her strength and expansion as an individual. She is really growing through this novel and it is clear that the social expectations that she is expected to adhere to were very imprisoning. Anyway, these are just a few of my thoughts on this classic novel. What did you think and what are your thoughts? Do email me and let me know. Now I'd just like to finish the podcast by reading out some poems by Tucker Zimmerman from a new collection of his called When In Flows the Sea. Tucker Zimmerman is an American writer and musician and I was very fortunate to have been given a book of his. first one I'm going to read out is Here and There. Here and There. First we go over here and we pick this up and put it on that. Then we take that and go over there. And when we get there we take this and go over here and put it down here. After that we do this over here. And we do it again down here and up there. We take this and put it down there and we go back over here and do it again after which we go back over there and take that and put it down here and we go back over there to where it says here and we walk out this door and promise ourselves we'll never go back in there again. 
And this next poem is called Sleep Loop. Sleep Loop. And the world goes round with the sky. And the sky goes round and I don't know why. There's a moon in there too with a welcome blue eye. And the moon goes round in the twilight sky. And my feet spin round on the merry go there. And the merry goes round and I don't know where. And my head spins round, spins round in the air. And the last thing I need is a merry go down. And my feet flow around with a low tone sound and the sea flows around my feet on the shore, flows around the sand and my high tide feet, and where do I fit in its caves of retreat? When I fall to the shore with my face in the waves, with my face in my hands and sand in my eyes, and where will I be when in flows the sea? When in flows the sea, where will I be? Will I be here? Will I be over there? Or somewhere between the some and the where? When I see with my eyes the eyes of a someone, a someone named me, when in flows the sea, where will I be when in flows the sea? Thank you, Tucker. Now, I've got some interesting ideas for the podcast. It's going to take a new form. I am going to take some suggestion from you guys about books to read next. I haven't got anything on the radar. Now, these books could be novels, short stories, non-fiction works, or even poetry. Anything that comes in book form, um, perhaps except instruction manuals, because nobody needs one of those. So, as soon as I have some ideas for some books... I am going to continue the Bookshook podcast, but it's going to be in a slightly different format. So watch this space and look out for the next episode of Bookshook. If you've got any questions or if you've got any suggestions for future books, do let me know. My email address is bookshook at yahoo.com. Have a very, very happy new year and watch this space. Bye. Bye.